I'll be able to stop all this terror and horror from happening if I can just find the right book to read from to solve this problem. Uh, 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 Silver, Silver Tongue, thank God you're here. Yes, what is it? Do you have a book for me to read? I do. I do. I I searched many libraries. I think I finally found the right one. Oh, phew. Here, read this. Let's see. Let me take a look here. Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. I'm not reading this. This isn't going to solve any of our problems. I, if anything, I think that another Silver Tongue has already read this book. Oh, no. Oh, gosh. Yeah, wait, uh, wait, look at this one. I have one for you could read it here. This would probably help us all. Okay, hopefully this is better. Let's see. Fifty Shades of Grey? Ooh. That, I, I don't want any weird... No, 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 this isn't happening. Uh. This could teach us how to deal with our enemies, though, right? Only if you want to fuck them to death. I really thought that was a promising lead, too. Okay, you know what? I've been holding a book I think is the perfect thing for this situation. I think this will solve all of our problems. Let me just pull it out from my bag here. Let's see, that's right. The Necronomy Cone. Perfect. Ooh, that French? I think so. Let me just get started here. That is not dead, which can eternal lie. Oh, we're saved. Thank goodness. Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mulkel, here with my literate co-hosts. I'm Chelsea Hollowell, an imp that was read out of the Necronomicon. Oh, God. <laughs> That's terrifying. I'm a lesser being sure, but I have my orders. I Which are to kill us all, right? To create mayhem, you know. Small bits of mayhem start seeds of doubt in su- people's minds. I suppose that's better. Yeah. It's yeah. nice having a clear purpose in life, you know? Definitely. And me? I'm Jack Olander. Another being read out of the same book. I think we're from the same book. But, you know, I'm just an outer being who wants to... Make friends and make conversation. Oh, that's nice. That Probably nothing will go wrong because of that. I, you know, I don't, I don't know about that, actually. You're so ancient, there's no word for what kind of being you are, either. Yeah, when I, when I introduce myself to a potential friend, normally they just uh, explode. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know... I'm just going to walk over here now. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're wearing the special earplugs, but everybody else that's listening to this might have a little bit of a problem. Well, I always knew that this podcast was going to drive everyone mad. The plug goes in your ear? (laughs) Some do. Well, if you haven't figured it out by now, this week we're going to be talking about Inkheart, the 2009 Brendan Fraser classic? Question mark? 
about uh, a guy who can read books to into reality. It sure is something. I'll tell you that. It sure is something. But before we get too far into this, I think Chelsea's got a summary raring the go so you remember what happens in the film. That's right. Here we go. So, guys, this is going to be easy to do. Not convoluted at all. Oh, thank Christ. So this movie, based on a book of the same name, is about Mo and his daughter Maggie. That's with an E. Meg E. Like the Meg. Right. And Mo is short for Mortimer. <laughs> they are. God bless you. <laughs> no. They are silver tongues, which means that they can read a book and. <laughs> I can read a book. <laughs> things of. Or characters out of the. Uh, come out of the book into reality. Yeah, I'm, I'm less good at that. It seems to mostly be characters or animals. But if something comes out of a book, something has to go in. It has to be an even trade. It's like the law of magic, but sillier. Yeah. So when Maggie is a baby, Mo accidentally reads this book, Inkheart, and he pulls out the villain, Capricorn. Played by um, Gollum. Right. Who some people call Andy Serkis. Oh, oh, and some of Capricorn's henchmen. He honestly brought out a lot of people from Inkheart. So I guess it's not a bad trade to uh, only have one person go in to get out like 10. Well, see, that's where the movie gets confusing, but we'll get into that. Oh, um, that's where the movie gets confusing. <laughs> okay. Phew. So he also brings out Dustfinger and Gwyn, which is like a ferret with horns. And Dustfinger is... Like a guy that's a fire performer. Played by uh, The Vision. Also, some people call him Paul Bettany. Yes. And unfortunately, his wife, Risa, is pulled into the book. And um, just so you guys know, her full name, which I learned from reading about the book, is called is Teresa. Ah, oh, wow. boy. Finally glad to get that mystery solved. Well, I thought these names were really weird, and they're just like odd nicknames, and it's not established, and it makes it confusing. It's also confusing that Maggie calls Mo Mo, and not like Dad. Dad. <laughs> also, to specify, Risa is the Silver Tongue's wife. Yes. yes. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Mo. Mo the Silver Tongue. Yes. Dustfinger's wife is Sarah from Labyrinth as an adult. Sorry, David Bowie. Ah, and she's still in the Inkheart world. And she has probably the smallest role in this film. So Mo has been searching for another copy of Inkheart for years to try to read his wife back out. He misses her. Maggie misses her mom. They they're both kind of sad. So what you're saying is this entire movie could have been resolved simply by existing in the modern day where like books can be procured very easy easily in digital form. Right. Yeah. This is a rare book and most of the books have been destroyed. We learn later by Capricorn himself. He kept one copy for himself just in case he ever needed it. But so 
Mo and Maggie go visit Eleanor to try to get her help. Played by a famous star of stage and screen, Helen Mirren. Yes. And Eleanor is Risa's aunt. And she's a rich old lady who likes to read books. So um, Dustfinger is trying to get Mo to read him back into the ink world so that he can be with his wife and kids again. And Mo refuses to do it even though he wants to read his wife out because he's afraid of what will happen because he can't actually control who comes and goes or what comes and goes. So it's a form of chaos magic. So I'm feeling like our Necronomicon connections kind of make sense. Yeah. And so Dustfinger betrays them, their position to Capricorn, and he sends some of his henchmen to kidnap them. Or abduct them. Classic villain maneuver. So he takes Eleanor as well, and they all end up in his dungeons, in his castle. Capricorn yeah. does not want to go back into Ink World. He's made a good life for himself here being a criminal. I mean, it is a good living, I'm told. He's basically a mob boss. Mm-hmm. And so he's blackmailing Mo. um... Threatening to hurt his family if Mo doesn't read certain passages in different books that Capricorn has picked out to get more wealth. He's hoping that Mo will read, like, from the tales of a thousand Arabian nights. Right, get that gold. Yeah, to get some of the treasure out. A kid named Fareed ends up coming out of that book as well. And as he's reading from the different books, some of... Capricorn's henchmen are pulled into those worlds. <laughs> that part was pretty fun. Yeah, and Capricorn doesn't give a shit about them. Also, I love the Thousand and One Arabian Nights, so this scene was like one of my favorites. Yeah, and um, the reason that Capricorn has so many henchmen around is because he, at some point in the backstory, had found another silver tongue named Darius, who has a speech impediment, so he can't read people all the way into our world and they come out with like tattoos of text all over their skin yeah everyone that darius summons out of the book has something you know changed about them or like they kind of describe them as being incomplete so like one of the characters has like a really smushed face yeah and it turns out that dustfinger knows a woman who's being held captive in the kitchens uh, in Capricorn's castle named Risa. So they all get out of the castle, but they leave Risa behind and they go seek in search of Fenoglio in Italy. He's the author of the Inkheart book. <laughs> yeah, that gave us the explicit tag just now. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, I think Chelsea might have to censor the name of the author. Yeah. Fluter Flam Fenoglio. he's played by uh the guy that plays uh that guy jim broadbent uh famous for his role as professor slughorn that's right so he has another copy of the book manuscript manuscript there we go and they go back to the castle kind of typical folklore fashion like going back and forth from the fucking castle just like that classic bit of folklore Underworld, Rise of the Lycans. Yeah. So when they go back, Risa has been imprisoned, and Capricorn finds out 
that she's Maggie's mom, and he finds out that Maggie is also a silver tongue and can read things out of the books. So he forces not her, just read them, but summon them. Yeah, he forces her to read out the shadow, which is basically the um, a monster kind of like the nothing that is the ashes of all of the creatures and humans from Inkworld that Capricorn burned. Oh, oh wow, I missed that. That well, is super cool. I learned about that lore from the book. I yeah. Oh, say. cool. You know what? If I was the screenwriter, I probably would have leaned into that sweet fucking detail. I know. Yeah. They don't actually say much about who Shadow is, but if they did, it would have made it that scene where he comes out much scarier. Perhaps yeah. it would have been more coherent if that uh, <laughs> those details had been present. That actually would have expanded Capricorn's character so much to have that fact be in there because they keep describing him in the film uh, you're just some dumb thug you're just an evil brute right? Yeah. Not that like, is the extent of the characterization we get and that is also the extent of the performance we get from Andy. Exactly. Not that you're some symbiotic being with uh, like a creature of uh, like fire burial. Yeah. So Finoglio and Chelsea <laughs> <laughs> and Maggie work together with the help of Gwyn, the cute ferret. Um, oh, God. Gwyn, best character in the whole book. So that when Capricorn forces Maggie to read from the Inkheart book, she's actually reading from a paper that Finoglio wrote upon to weaken the shadow and force him to hurt Capricorn and take him out. Turns out Silver Tongues can just write shit on their arms and read it. Whatever the fuck they want and do anything. Like, yeah, well, Maggie does take over and start doing that. She wants to be a writer and she's a silver tongue. It seems super OP. She starts writing out new words and controlling everyone around her and sending them all back to Ink World. But new things don't come through. So that's an inconsistency we can talk about. And um, will this power be used for good or evil? <laughs> Definitely evil at some point. And then that's kind of the end. Wow, that was concise. Okay. And really easy to follow, I'm sure, for the listener. Book. <laughs> Hopefully so, easier than it was to watch. <laughs> Damn, Chelsea getting to the rating already. <laughs> but anyways, uh... <laughs> Is this Monster Hunter? The film? <laughs> Monster Hunter was short, at least. Yeah. Why don't we head to the Delve? Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore for Inkheart. All right, guys, so this movie has brought up tons of questions. I've got to get answers to all of them or I won't be able to sleep tonight. The first question I have is why is Finoglio a male actor when the actual author of this book was a female writer? I'm so glad you started with this question. Because this means we can get right into it with comparing the movie to the book. Oh. So. Well, you're welcome. They're actually very similar. So, for some reason, maybe because I'm dumb, <laughs> um, 
I thought that the movie was somehow an adaptation where Inkheart, the novel, in our world, <laughs> IRL, oh. I thought Inkheart was a book about that world, that fantasy world specifically, and they had adapted it for the movie to have like it be like where this guy could read them out of the book. No, but no, that's not the case. The novel is almost completely the same as the movie. So this is following in the tradition of say the Princess Bride, which is basically the same thing, right? Or is or is it the opposite thing? Or is the wait, now I feel, now I feel dumb. No, see, that is very incorrect, but that is what I thought was happening in this movie. Okay. <laughs> And I this think is a very confusing film. I think it's because we are children of the 80s, you and I, Jamie. Yes. And so we're used to these framing devices that they put into movies to kind of make it more accessible for a wider audience and uh, to ease people into this story. It was a classic device. Right. But it's no longer in use, and we weren't really thinking of that. And no... The novel actually is this guy, Mo, Mo, and his daughter Maggie. They are silver tongues. They read things out of a book in there in this novel. It's also called Inkart. The novel itself is called Inkart. It's very confusing. So this was not a meta deconstruction of the book, but a just straight adaptation. Exactly. Okay. You know. What, the way you thought it was is way cooler than it is. <laughs> I was saying they should have released a sequel to this that was just the fantasy novel turned into a movie. I would watch that. I would watch that Andy would Serkis cool. and Paul Bettany just having a good old time. So so the Inkheart book is part of a trilogy. Right. I knew that. The novel in our world. This is so confusing because there's they use the same title for all the layers Okay, Ep, um, it was like Ink Heart, Ink Spell, and Ink Death. Oh. These are all German novels. And there are children. So there's umlauts over like all the <laughs> vowels. And they are children's books. <laughs> what does an umlaut over an I look like? I, I actually read the fourth and fifth ones, uh, Ink Breath, and I inked myself. <laughs> Ink Have you ever read the prequel? <laughs> Ink birth? Oh. That sounds gross. Um That was the that was by intention. So New, New Line Cinema bought the rights to all three books, the adaptation rights. And I'm sure have made all the movies, right? No. Okay. No. <laughs> the first one did not do very well in the theater, so they they've never adapted the other too, but, but they still could. They might actually because the series is being revived right now. The Yo. author was ori originally had um, published. And this was auspicious the, timing. The third book was published in 2007, and that was considered the end of the, the trilogy. She's reviving it now. She's writing another book that's con going to continue the adventure. Nice. I believe I heard that when asked why now, she said... Oh, because money. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I think it's due to come out next year sometime. Mm -hmm. The book the book is going to come the out next year. The newest book that okay. she's writing, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So they might end up 
being like, you know what? Let's continue those other movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- at this point, they would probably start over. Oh, you're right. Yeah, they might. But I kind of want them to, like, get Brandon Fraser back. That would and, be amazing. And, like, carry on. Like, get that guy in some new stuff. I I hear he's doing movies now. I mean, I love Brandon Fraser. Me too. That would be amazing. The Mummy was, like, one of my favorite movies yeah. growing up, like, as a teenager. I always was attracted to him. I thought he was a hunk. I mean, you are so right. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Encino Man? Come on. But he has great charisma, too, and I like oh. his style. Classic, like, 90s slash early 2000s leading man. Yeah. True. Take away the hotness, and you still have someone who steals the show. Yep. Yeah. He's yes. got it. Yes. The it factor. Yes. And the hotness is not even, like, it's not a looks thing. It is a, a charisma thing, of yeah. course. Yes. Yeah. Totally. He still got it, dude. He is a handsome guy. He is. He's a yeah. snack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, we're doing a show about the movie. <laughs> yes, but we're talking about the important parts. <laughs> yeah. So the differences between the book and the movie, they're not that many, actually. Mm. There are a few key differences, like... The aunt, Eleanor, she actually has a bigger role oh, that's, in the that's book. Good. Oh, in the book. Oh, I yeah. in the movie. No. Oh, shit. They kind of relegate her to the side. Actually, she and Maggie both have more agency in the book. Hmm. Oh, that's troubling. Yeah, they, Mo is actually the one that gets captured, and they go to Finoglio, and they go to uh, try to save Mo. Oh, that would have been honestly, that would have fit the movie better, I feel like, because one of the things I thought was interesting about this movie is that Brendan Fraser is not like a super heroic lead like True. he was in, like, say, The Mummy or anything. Like, And I liked that. I liked that he was playing more of a, you know, a thoughtful protagonist yeah he wasn't like a man of action who was like i'm a silver tongue but i'm gonna punch all my problems too like he wasn't a traditional hero and i thought that was great i would have much rather seen the version where he had to be saved yeah well they did get captured while on their rescue mission like they do in the movie yeah it just happens later after they've had kind of their own mini adventure oh well i mean you know you have to adapt for the screen and screen yeah, time and everything. I think but. they could have done that while still giving them some more spotlight. I mean, oh, Helen absolutely. Mirren's a big name. Yeah. She does kind of just disappear for a while in the movie and then pop back in when it's like, oh, we've got to get our uh, money's worth. I know. But um, another <sighs> thing is that Dustfinger actually betrays them earlier, but befriends them faster and is actually a lot more helpful and less subversive to their actions than he is in the movie. In the novel, he is a lot more helpful to them throughout their whole adventure. Ashfinger is? Yeah, Dustfinger. Dustfinger. Yeah. <laughs> I and mean, he's fire. He has fire magic. You'd think it would be Ash. That's why I keep doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and Fareed, it, actually, he does take him on as an apprentice and... It's more of an established thing between them. Yeah. In the movie, they try to make it like Dustfinger doesn't really want him around. It's true. He's sort of just like, 
is reluctantly teaching this annoying kid. Yeah. And in the end, they actually go off together to try to find another silver tongue like they do in the movie, but they go on the road together as equals. Like they're plan they travel together and he does take the Inkheart book, um, Dustfinger does. Um, but Mo doesn't catch up with them and read him back in in the movie. They just take off with the book at the end of the first book, Inkheart. So do they just like slap in the ending from a different book? That's my s- suspicion. Okay. It did feel like we were sort of robbed in that scene. Yeah. Like they were setting up Dustfinger and Fareed to go off together. And I was all hyped for it. I'm like, oh, this is sick. It reminds me of the end of Erementari, where the devil man and that coach wagon are like going to go off together as buddies. I'm like, yeah, we're getting the buddy ending. And then Brendan Fraser's like, want to (laughs) die? And he's like, hell yeah, brother. (laughs) I think that they must have gotten... Like, they had their their script and everything. They had Jennifer Connelly. They wanted this side plot. And they just should have cut it, unfortunately. Because it mostly just creates a weird, disjointed ending that detracts from kind of the overarching, like, tension of everything. And actually, one thing we haven't mentioned is that Dustfinger has read the book he comes from. And he's read the end, so he knows that his character dies in the book. But he still wants to go back because of how much he misses his family. And that's something I want to... First off, I want to talk about that as a theme for sure. That's a, that's a great thing. I'm glad you bring that up. But I feel like they could have done that better without having this weird, like, kind of these weird jumps to Jennifer Conley, where we're just kind of like, okay, this person is important because they're Jennifer Conley, but... Yeah. She has, I believe, no speaking role in the entire film. She says, come home, Dustfinger. <laughs> okay. So practically no speaking role. Yeah. And they don't, like, it doesn't culminate in an interesting way. It's just slapped on at the end. It's, but- it's like a postscript where they're like, oh, this movie's not going to succeed. We're just going to wrap that plot up because we're not going to get the next book, the next movie. But I was going to say that you got to have all those shots in there because that's when you have the sexy fire dancing on Dustfinger's part. Sure. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) It just they tried to make this bigger subplot and it just falls very short, in my opinion. Yes, it does. And it really feels like they are slapping that on and they slapped on the end with Mo. They might have just thrown that on there in similar circumstances to what you were talking about. Yeah, I mean, this is all speculation, of course, but it just, the ending is very slapdash. It is weird how they, like, take the book and they're gonna take off, and then Mo catches up with them, and so none of their actions mattered. I was like, why are we getting so many different endings all mashed together? Now, remind me, the ending when Dustfinger returns to Inkworld isn't it like a really long shot where like that might not even be Jennifer Conley? No, but he runs up to her and they hug each other. No, I know, but isn't it like a really far away shot where like you're not even sure who? They never actually show her face up close. Right. So if that's the case, that furthers my suspicion that this ending was slapped together. Maybe. 
I suspect that that is something that happens in the third book, in the book we have IRL, uh, Ink Death. And um, <laughs> actually, the reason... You can't say that on a podcast, Ralphie. The reason that Dustfinger dies in the book, we find out, is because he's caught by Capricorn and, and killed by him when Dustfinger is trying to save his little ferret friend, Gwyn. Oh. But Gwyn doesn't go back into the world with him, so they're thinking that Dustfinger may not die, and it's like, so does the literal book in their hands change if characters leave and go back in and other characters don't? And it Listen, Chelsea, you're asking a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> and these are great questions. They don't uh, <laughs> I wonder if it's covered in the novel. They don't cover this these questions in the movie. I, yeah. I mean, with what we have, we don't get answers to that. But yeah. I want to talk about, since we're bringing this up, this theme of fate and predestination that exists in the movie that I think doesn't get its full time for the movie or get fleshed out, but it is something that keeps coming up. Like, Finoglio points out that he wrote Dustfinger a certain way, but yeah. Dustfinger has this idea that he's, like, reprehensible, right? He kind of thinks of himself as being... A scoundrel. A scoundrel. Finoglio says something to the effect of like, but that's not necessarily who you are or how I wrote you or something like that. I have it written down because I like that so well. It, he said, you don't have to be selfish just because that's how I wrote you. Okay, so there you go. <laughs> so, I mean, but that's an interesting idea that I feel like doesn't get enough. I don't know if screen time is the word. It doesn't get covered enough. We, it doesn't have a satisfying role in how the movie plays out yeah. this idea that the characters in the book do or do not follow a predestined personality and behaviors yeah because um in other instances dustfinger is trying to stress his personal autonomy when he's talking to finoglio and he says you are not my god my I fate, love that line. My fate is my own. Just because you wrote that I die in the book doesn't mean it has to end that way. But then, so that seems to reinforce what Finoglio is telling him. Yeah. But then at the end, he does just steal the ink card book and doesn't trust Mo to read him back in. Yeah. It's like they, they had the idea of a theme, but they were like, nah, fuck it. Yeah. But I think it's a really interesting theme and we can take it as advice for our own lives. It's kind of like being written a certain way. You could kind of extrapolate to meaning what people expect of you. Sure. So you don't have to live up to other people's expectations of you. Uh, you can be your own person. You know, you can dictate your own identity and behaviors and you can be whoever you want to be. Yeah, you can recreate yourself. Yeah. And it would have been nice if the movie paid off that theme. Right. Because it comes up in the dialogue quite a bit. You expect it to have a bigger payoff in the end of the movie that Dustfinger is going to be like a kind of a hero. But his role in the end of the movie is kind of nothing. I know. Except for at the very end, the tacked on ending. He seems like a really cool character and I would have liked to see more of him 
I don't know, or just get something more meaningful from the character and his interactions. I agree. Yeah. I actually thought he was potentially the most fleshed out character in the film. That might be true. But I, I'm saying the theme of him like being able to change doesn't really pay off. But yes, I, I think you might be right about that. He's one of the more interesting characters. It's true. I think his ability to change wasn't necessarily showcased. More that he was probably the most nuanced character that was read out of the book. The scoundrel with a noble heart, which is not... I guess a trope, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. But I mean... Real Han Solo type. He's just so hot. <laughs> and he makes fire. Yeah. So he's yeah. hot in multiple ways. It's true. He does play with fire with his shirt off, so that's a thing. It's going to be an awakening for a lot of people. Yes. Probably. Yes. <laughs> that's when I knew I had to be a fire dancer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just wish that they had done more with this idea of people can be more than the expectations that are set out for them. What they focused more on in the film was actually the spectacle of the silver tongue powers. Yes. I get it on the one hand, because that makes for more interesting cinema. It's, it's more, uh, it's splashier. It, it's more exciting to sh on the screen. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the special effects look fun, and, and I could see why they would lean into that. Well, not just that, but just this whole idea that things could come out of these worlds. Like when Mo is reading from A Thousand and One Arabian Nights, they have wind starting to come through the room, and then sand starts to form in all the corners and starts to cover everything. And then suddenly co gold coins are falling from the ceiling and Fareed drops in partway through that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> See, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that was good. And the dungeons are full of all these creatures that Darius has unwittingly pulled through in other books trying to get treasure for Capricorn. Like, you can't totally control everything that comes through. Right. There's like a unicorn and the minotaur. Yeah. A lot of horned things. This is like, they really leaned into the adventure theme uh, more than the autonomy theme. Definitely. They uh, made that classic mistake of using The Wizard of Oz and making you remember a better movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, it is interesting, though, this idea that Stories are living worlds that you can be a visitor within when you're reading them. And I think that is an interesting idea because whenever they show like some of the henchmen getting pulled into other books, there will be a short cut scene of them like dealing with being in that world and they are aware and alive in that world. Yeah, the implications about what books can are be or are in this world are haunting. I know. These characters are alive. Reliving the same 500 pages over and over and over again. It is like their own personal hell. That is in a lot of like modern media and shows that I've watched, that is how hell is portrayed like you're reliving like in Lucifer? Right. Yeah. Yes. So it's interesting that the Silver Tongues have this power. Their power is in their voice. They can 
hear books talking to them and it draws them to those stories, which is interesting. So it's more than just reading it out loud. It actually kind of goes both ways. They hear voices in their head that are people speaking in these books. And that's one of the cool effects of the movie, I think. It's like the scenes where Maggie is hearing the voices from books around her. I like that part. And if they just read silently to themselves, their power doesn't activate. They have to read it out loud. Right. They're bards. Right. It's, uh, exactly. Verbal components. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're bards, definitely. And I don't know if they really leaned into the symbolism of Risa losing her voice. Yeah, they could have done a lot more with that. You're right. Didn't because think about that. It's symbolic. It's like a total juxtaposition from the silver tongues whose power is their voice but that is what happens in the IRL novel Inkheart right that's the same but it would be interesting adaptation if they were to rethink that and have one of the silver tongues lose their voice I mean that would create a lot of tension like Maggie because she is OP she's a writer and a silver tongue so at one point she stopped reading her own writing in the movie and she was just speaking aloud what she wanted to have happen and it her will be done. She's a fucking god. Yeah, she's a god. Yeah. I mean, a <laughs> chaos god because she can't control the like every outcome, but she can talk the world into existence. No, she can control every outcome. She absolutely did. Yeah, no, she did. Well, we don't know what got pulled into the book when she did it. Oh, we saw what got pulled into the book. She narrated exactly what she wanted to go in that sucker. Yeah. I have a theory about how it, this works, though. Okay. And the reason it has to be the written word and how it has to be a good draft, because they throw out a lot of drafts of their pay, of this foil of the Inkheart Capricorn plan. Yes, that's Finoglio is helping to write. Yes. It's, I think it has to be immersive, right? And he also said something about it has to have the same voice as the original text. Yeah. So for it to work. It has to be true. A lot of arbitrary work. rules and ink art magic. Yeah, it's true. But, but it's it, interesting. It's art magic, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That part I like. Yeah. So if she is speaking like the way the author would do it, her narrative is in line with how things are supposed to be I going. See. Yeah. Is she can just control it from the free flow, right? Right. And she, I felt like she was doing Yeah. That. Yeah, she was succeeding. She kind of got his she's adaptive. She instinctually internalized the voice the original author was using for that book. And was able to narrate further beyond Mm -hmm. in that same voice. Yes. But it's true. She was narrating exactly who she wanted to go back into the world. And they would disappear as she said. Right. But I mean, we assume that there is some hidden cost that we don't see get paid. Because if they're getting pulled back in, something else has to come out. Right. But we don't see where they go or who it is. Which would have been a better ending to just have some funny, like, joke. Like, they're in, you know, New York. We cut to New York and there's just, like, a dragon over the city or something. Seriously, it would have been great because it has to be one for one. It doesn't have to be, a um like, a, a living thing because, like, 
they could bring out gold and treasure. But it should be a dragon. Yeah. But so let's break down the implications of this world. So when you're a writer, you write a book, and you have created an actual literal world as soon as you're done writing in this world. It, you, you right. as a writer, you bring it into existence. And these characters are living beings. Right. Then certain people don't have the magic of creation, but have the magic of extraction. Right. The silver tongues can right. touch into these magical worlds that exist from the books. So authors are like the supreme mages, and then the silver tongues, the bards, can kind of touch those worlds and pull them out. And it, it just, you know, the implications of the magic system in this world are wild and haunting. Yes, it's true. Because people get pulled into those fictional worlds because there has to be an exchange. Like Risa. Right. Mm-hmm. She was living in the ink world for some amount of time, not the entire nine or ten years that they were looking for her because they didn't realize that Darius had read her back out. The reason she lost her voice is because he had read her out incorrectly or incompletely. Well, because his silver tongue magic is... Tainted, I guess, by... Flawed, I guess? Flawed. Yeah. But it, I don't like that implication because it's flawed because he has a speech impediment. Yeah, I mean, that's a bit ableist for sure. And it's the same in the IRL novel, by the way. It's an interesting concept. Yeah. I think that they were trying to... I think it's insensitive, though. Well, interesting things can be insensitive, absolutely. <laughs> I guess. Like, I feel like they could have just said, like, he's not a very good silver tongue. Right. Or he's not very well trained, so it just happens. They didn't have to give him a speech impediment. Like, maybe he has less control over it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But okay, the idea does. that they have a silver tongue who is not as skilled and is creating, like, I really thought that visually the characters from the books who had, like, the text tattooed on them, that was a cool looking visual. Yeah, it was. And it was all over the parts of the castle that Darius had helped bring through, too. Yeah. The writing and everything. So, like, they created a really cool looking world with the film. Yes. But yeah, the implications of this magic system are just wild. I know. Yeah. I mean, so every time you write, is it just creative fiction? What happens with books that are kernels of reality and also fiction, like interwoven, which, you know, I know right. a lot of writers do. Mm -hmm. Like, what happens with ethnographies and bibliography? I'm sorry, biographies and, and all these other things. This. Wow, just wild, wild implications about what types of worlds there are inside of books, and then what would happen if Silver Tongues were to read those books out loud and bring them into the world. Yes. I'm just saying, a Silver Tongue reading a self-help book out loud? Now that's peak performance. <laughs> <laughs> just saying. But... Speaking of this troubling Silver Tongue, the one with the uh, troubling implications... Darius. Uh, yes. I feel this movie was troubling with every single one of its female characters. Yeah. Let's why, talk why about it. get into that. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of hard for me to talk about this film without thinking of this the entire time. 
Almost every character at some point puts down women. Yeah, it was uncomfortable, for sure. Yeah, I guess we'll start with Risa, just because she's the foremost one on my mind. She's the goal of the movie, the damsel in distress. Right. Yeah. Right? The family member lost. The main the main guy, is Mo, he's only a hero because he's trying to save his wife. And that's a big trope in films and books where you kill off someone's lover to have them be enraged and become a hero and save the day, like in our Hercules 3D movie oh boy. Yeah. that we watched. That was the first time we mentioned that troubling trope on the podcast, I think. The <laughs> novel this movie is based on has a lot of similar themes, and it was published 18 years ago. Right. But... This trope goes back further than that. Yeah, but Risa, she can't talk. That's another one of the themes you're saying. But like, she's just, she just exists as motivation for the main cast. Yeah, she's the catalyst that like spawns their other actions or desires, but she doesn't have her own autonomy. Yeah. Also at the beginning of the movie, I just thought we were having another orphaned child i mean i guess not orphan but like missing mother like absent mother character and that is basically what this is yeah yep that's another thing you know being a mom in a, in media i wouldn't <laughs> right i know i was like oh is this a disney movie yeah <laughs> but new line cinema is yeah. the production company but still right also meggie as a character she gets her silver tongue powers eventually but the first two-thirds of the film is everyone just shushing Maggie, telling her, oh, don't touch my stuff. Or stay here out of the way. Yeah, shut the fuck up, Maggie. <laughs> yeah. Probably the harshest line in the whole movie. <laughs> yeah. It's spoken by her own father. The one F-bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Every PG movie gets one. Wait. Wait a minute. This doesn't sound right. Yeah. This is our headcanon. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> well, they're very unkind to yes. Maggie in the first half. And I get that everyone is stressed and trying to be protective of her. But, like, giving her the the victory scene at the end felt a little unfair to her. Look, this is based on a children's book. In the book... Yeah. She does a lot more, and she's more active in the adventure with her aunt. That's because it's a kid's book, and they want to see the child who's the hero, right? Yeah. That's common in a lot of children's fiction. That's why I wish they had kept that in the film, because she seems like just this put-aside, oppressed side character until the very end. It's like, oh, by some... Twist of fate, she saves us instead of like a build up to like, of course, Maggie's the one who's going to save the day. It's like, oh, I guess Maggie did it. Oh, she's got magic. Yeah. I know. And it's the same with the aunt. It's even worse for her. Oh, the aunt is a very cringy character to me. Yeah. I mean, she and Maggie bond in the novel over being readers at first. She does do the thing where she's like, don't touch any of my books. But then when she finds out that Maggie loves reading just as much as she does, then they are like are really close. Yeah. After that. And she helps Maggie on the adventure. She she's not in the movie. They make her seem like, 
a bookworm that doesn't want to leave her house. She's almost a shut-in. Yeah. But in the novel, she helps them and goes on the adventure with Maggie. Yeah. Weird changes. I know. And I didn't like how Capricorn kept saying, like, oh, this old, ugly old woman who's useless. Yeah. Well, he's the villain. We're not supposed to agree with what Capricorn said. No, but I mean, Jesus Christ, he was laying it on really thick. I mean, he said it several times and they were treating her like garbage. It's true. And he's like, she's the first one to die. <laughs> like, yeah. No. Completely devalued a woman who is older than fucking 20 something. Yeah. And... She's not even that old. No. They were calling her an old woman. She must have been like in her early 50s or something. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it was fucked. Also, Fareem. Fareed. Fareed. Right when he is in the cell with them after spawning into our world. Yeah. He calls Maggie like stupid girl. Oh, yeah. Instantly. I was like, yeah. Don't give me, also don't give me the excuse that he's from like medieval times and that he's that like culturally he would be more sexist. It's the most anachronistic film. Yeah. Don't <laughs> don't give me historical accuracy. Yeah, Toto doesn't say one terrible thing about anybody when he uh, he comes out of Wizard of Oz. Yes, it's Toto true. Great. It's true. Toto was very good. But I was just like, "Oh, God, come on, don't, don't, uh, like, uh, oppress my girl, Maggie, anymore. She's already been moved to a side character from a main character. Plus, she's a goddess. You don't want to piss off a goddess. It's true. Also good advice. Yeah. Yeah. Generally, good advice not to piss off deities. Right. Yes. Just ask Prometheus. Mm Mm-hmm. And the one other uh, part of insensitivity I wanted to mention besides misogyny. Yeah, that's a big one, though. Yes. Also touching on the aunt character. Right. Hating the elderly. Yeah, ageist. Yeah, really ageist. It's sexist, ableist, and ageist. Great for a kid's movie, guys. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, the aunt... Old woman, they call her old. She's like considered to be useless. Yeah, they they make her this like completely unfriendly character. Won't compromise on anything, but is often wrong. And she's complaining the whole time about not being in her home as a shut in. Like, yeah, I mean, I can relate to that. <laughs> but like she clearly makes no effort to be sociable but then complains that she's like mistreated. Yeah. And also fuck muck. What is the author's name? <laughs> Finoglio. Oh yeah, Finoglio. It's more troubling that you told me that the actual author is a woman and that wrote the author in the book to be a man. I know. Like, is there some sort of self-loathing going on there? Well, it seems like it because um, some of the internalized misogyny, I think, carries over from the novel. That's what I was thinking, too. From my understanding of it, yeah. But yeah, Feneglio is also portrayed as this bumbling, completely useless. He doesn't even write the final passage to save the day. 
The reason they recruited him. Here you go. Here's a pen. Was he useful a single time? He had the manuscripts. Oh, in yeah. The, in the novel, Inkheart, he actually is a caretaker of his three grandchildren. Oh, you see, that's nice. Yeah. That's nice. He's not just some old bachelor. He had a family. He has these three grandchildren that he's taking care of. And um, he's like a surrogate father figure for them. Yeah, that's great. You see, that immediately adds a lot more like maturity and depth to the character. Makes I thought it made him more interesting. <laughs> I could see why they would cut that for time, though. This movie already runs long for a kid's movie. It's almost two hours. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm sure there's other stuff they could have cut. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Like the whole ending that well, sure. didn't make any sense. <laughs> uh, also... Uh, Finocchio. <laughs> he, <laughs> I mean, every scene he's on screen, it's just like, oh, you're from my book. Why are you just like I wrote you? <laughs> why, why are you just? You remember when you die? Remember when I made you suffer? <laughs> that was me. Also, in the book, he doesn't want to <laughs> go into his own novel. He has three grandchildren that he cares for. Right. <laughs> he has a reason to stay in the world. You know, huh. the most troubling part of that is I thought him wanting to go into his own book was the most interesting part of the character in the film. Yeah, me oh, too. Yeah. Actually. But it's more, <laughs> I think it's... I would be a god in this world because I know every outcome. Yeah. Uh, but, like, it didn't add a lot of depth to his character, I don't think. No. Also, if he's doomed to repeat the narrative over and over again, he might eventually realize the error of his ways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a cautionary tale. Inkheart. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, guys, there's one more thing that I would be remiss if I didn't bring up. And that's themes of class and class struggle in this movie. Holy shit. So here's the thing. I was almost unsure if I could classify this movie as a fantasy because there's not a lot of class consciousness in it. But there's a few things we can touch upon. Okay. First, we have the obvious one, that Risa is relegated to a slave role in Capricorn's castle. Yeah, she's chained to the counter where she works in the kitchen. All of the kitchen staff are appear to be women who are, have been, like, relegated to this role. And meanwhile, we've got the villain of Capricorn, who comes from Inkworld, who does not want to go back. And it seems to me, like, part of the reason that he doesn't want to return to his world is that he has gotten this taste of what is can only be uh, assumed to be, like, the sweet capitalist dreams of being able to exploit his position as a magical tyrant over the land. Yes, he got a taste of power and it drove him mad. He's mad. He's power hungry. But he see, he talks specifically about loving our world. So what is it that our world has that a medieval fantasy world doesn't have, right? We're talking besides things that you would want, like flushing toilets and mm -hmm. airplanes and... 
peanuts in little packages that you can just rip open and eat on the go. Or pretzels. Or or pretzels. But I, I really got this subtle capitalist undertone of why Capricorn wanted to stay in this world. He, he had the ability to exploit resources in a way that he was not previously able to in Ink World. Also, um, to reinforce your point, think of the coding. He was dressed like a businessman. Exactly. In a suit. He is coded as a wealthy entrepreneur. Right. He almost looks like a CEO. Right. Or a robber baron. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing. Yeah. Tomato, tomato. Exactly. <laughs> or like that chimpanzee from Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I still need to see that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, subtle class themes in this one. Not a lot of class consciousness. Not a lot of overt class consciousness. I mean... But a few things to work with. Eleanor is a rich woman. Yes, but she... Well, and so as a hero, coded as a wealthy aristocrat, basically. She can just jet around going on adventures. She doesn't have to worry about the cost. At one point in the film, she threatens Mo with disinheriting him if he doesn't get her out of the situation when they're captured. Right. So she's hoarding, or I'm sorry, she's lording her wealth over her family as a means of getting what she wants. In this yeah. case, getting what she wants is protecting her, right? But yeah. Still, it's not the best look. No. Since he was trying to do that anyway. Yeah. And it's not his fault. Might as well threaten him. But <laughs> so a lot of unquestioned assumptions about <laughs> wealth and capital throughout the film. Yeah, but that's interesting, though. It's like an unexamined undercurrent. Exactly. I mean, Farid, in his world, right? He's, he was he's with a, a band of thieves trying to rob these tombs. Because he's just a poor boy trying to get by. Nobody loves him. Exactly. And I'm sure he comes from a poor family. Right. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> But so this class struggle spans all of these fantasy worlds. And Capricorn's main goal is to just increase his own wealth and power. He's hoarding it. He's forcing other people into slavery just to support him. And he's forcing other people that are his prisoners to just increase his wealth. Yep. And he doesn't really ever talk about what he wants to do with it. He just wants to have it and have the most. Oh, gee, this sounds familiar. Hmm. Yeah. Well, guys, I think we've pretty much covered most of what was going on in this movie. Why don't we head to the smithy? Welcome to the smithy where we forge a rating for this movie after we each share an epic moment or feature from the film. Chelsea, do you want to give us your epic moment or feature and then give us your rating from one to ten quills? Ooh, yes, I would. Ooh. I like the part with the book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I know we talked about it a little bit, but I gotta just really hammer home this epic feature and that is maggie's powers <laughs> yes epic powers seriously i just need to reiterate how fucking un 
godly strong she is or or godly strong yeah (laughs) she can control anything she wants with her fucking words okay she just instinctually she's kind of like ray real mary sue yeah but ray skywalker exactly (laughs) but who are your people (laughs) but she just instinctually transitions from reading the written word aloud to narrating her will yeah and rewriting reality she's kind of like the scarlet witch too chaos magic yeah totally she does tap into something that's way stronger than what her father can do. She's like the strongest silver tongue there is. I imagine based on what we saw, because she starts writing on her arm and reading that out loud. And that does affect the people around her. And she does also, like we said, have control over where they go and who leaves. And it doesn't, seem like she has to have an exchange maybe she does and we just didn't get to see it in the movie but it's still very powerful she controls the shadow as much as she wants which is this all-powerful entity she's stronger than this thing and she she could just create anything she wants in reality in her reality and just have it come through it's it's like this otherworldly being that shouldn't exist, but she's there. (laughs) And yet she doesn't use it to solve all the world's problems. Hmm. Hmm. Suspicious. Well, she comes from an elite family. So it's just one of the most powerful abilities. She speaks and reality fits to her words and her whims. It's one of the strongest abilities I've ever seen in a movie. Out well, I know who of- Chelsea's recruiting for our Fantasy Avengers this year. Yes, thank you. Out of all of the Marvel movies, all of the comics, everything, she's... I don't want to fucking hear about any of these other people. She's one of the strongest beings I've ever seen. She's no mega silver tongue. Seriously. Um, yeah. I mean, we keep saying she's a god, but it's literally she speaks and it happens. Yeah. So, uh, like omnipotence yeah that, no that's yeah that's a baby omnipotent creature i mean yeah she could develop it further for sure yeah as long as it's immersive right yeah she just has to stick to a certain voice a cadence and she's good yeah so anyway that was my epic feature mm-hmm. i'm gonna give this movie A 7 out of 10. Wow. That's higher than I thought after some of your initial comments. Yeah, I mean, it's got a lot of problems, but it also brings up a lot of really fascinating ideas about fantasy worlds and stories and storytelling. Implications. (laughs) Yes. And, like, personal autonomy and what that means. And kind of like how art can take on a life of its own, like the death of the author concept. So. It's really fascinating. I think it it gets a lot of points for all of that stuff. There's a lot of room to grow. Maybe the author will fix some of this stuff in the newest book. You never know. But yeah, there we go. That's my rating. Oh, 7 out of 10 quills, by the way. Thank you. Nice. Yeah. 
Jack, how about your epic moment or feature and your rating from one to ten quills? I'll tell you exactly what it is. My my epic feature is the shadow. Nice. Oh, yeah. Unsurprisingly, I was saying it looked just like a 3D version of Hexus from Fern Gully. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, who? Well, the shadow in this isn't voiced by Tim Curry, so the sex appeal is much lower. Yeah. True. But, like, still visually very cool. Giant being of smoke. Yes. The eyes and mouth of fire. Yeah, it also had kind of like a skull face. Yeah, exact. It was just Hexus. It was very cool and creepy. Yeah. Would have liked to see more of it. I wasn't sure about its name just being the shadow i'm like it's the dark it's the it's evil it's it's the spooky it's the bad that's kind of why it's compared to the nothing because when they first described it it showed just its shadow reaching out over everything yeah that was a creepier image that was really cool Yeah. yeah But, I mean, the name was my only complaint with the thing. It was actually super awesome to look at. And really cool, the scenes it had in the film. And it's like the shadow of the crime lord reaching out, because Capricorn controls it. Yeah. So it's his shadow reaching out to devastate the landscape. He controls it? Yeah. He does? Mm-hmm. Okay, because they keep calling him a henchman of the shadow. Well, they, In the he's movie. bound to it, and it's bound to him. I see. So it is symbiosis. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah, but anyway, just visually, that was very cool. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But if I'm going to rate this movie out of uh, 10 quills, I'm probably going to give it 5 out of 10 quills. That's solid. I've probably seen this movie five times. Oh, wow. You have? Oh, yeah. I so one quill for every time you've seen it. Yeah. Normally for five quills, it would be a movie I might feel okay with watching twice. Okay. Maybe fine seeing it once, you know? Right. And this movie sort of falls into that category. However, it's not offensive to the eyes, right? However, it, it does feel like there are certain points in the film where its ink orifice opens up and inks on my eyes. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I guess I'm just lowering it because, it, you know, it's not the most progressive film. No. Uh, the one theme I brought up was the fact that it was very regressive in some of its speech and things like that. However, like you said... The way it portrays fantasy worlds as universes manifested and how Dust Fingers is just so cool. That Dust Finger, he he and Brendan Fraser, they carried this movie for me I so know. hard. Truth. They, they, they were, were so cool. They were competing over who was the most handsome. It's true. It's true. And, you know, uh, it, it's fun. It's fun. This is a movie if people want to put on, I'm not going to complain and I'm just going to I'm gonna say, you know what? It's all right. There you go. I think it's worth seeing if you haven't seen it, too. So, 5 out of 10 quills, it's not bad. Anyway, what about you, Jamie? What is your epic moment and or feature and rating out of 10 quills? Well, I'm glad you asked. I think my epic feature of this movie is just Helen Mirren. Yeah. Nice. She's great. I love her in anything. 
the character we've talked a little bit about how the character is a little underrepresented, not necessarily portrayed in the best light, but overall she's charming as hell in the movie. I like when she's like riding the motorcycle. She comes in on the unicorn at the end. There was a lot of potential that they built up and Helen can just sell anything yeah. and she was there for it like you could tell she was just on board with the wacky dialogue and the and the wacky setups and everything and it's like knowing that she does stuff like this she's this amazing accomplished actor who's played both queen elizabeth yeah and like all these epic like shakespearean characters and stuff and then she's in like the new fast and the furious movie and she's in Inkheart, and she's just having a good time yeah and i like when actors just don't take themselves too seriously let themselves have some fun take some weird fun fantasy roles especially i mean any actor who'll be in a fantasy movie and sell it you know that they've got my thumbs up yeah so yeah, just it was nice to see her in something fantastical that wasn't like, you know, car wrestling, like Fast and the Furious, but like more of the type of fantasy that we cover on the show. Yeah. As far as my rating, I'm going to go with Jack here. I think I agree that this is a five out of ten movie. Yeah. It is not, to me, especially spectacular. It's got some fun ideas, but it under delivers. I'm more disappointed than, like, upset or anything. I, I'm glad we watched it. I had a fun time watching with you guys yeah. and reviewing it. I just feel like it doesn't hold up super well, maybe because some of the themes, you know, not getting fleshed out, some of the ideas being a little, like we said, uh, troubling and their implications about certain groups of people. And I just wanted more out of it. But I had a fun time. It's a good middle-of-the-road movie. Like Jack said, if somebody was going to turn it on, I wouldn't complain or be like, God, no, save me. Yeah. Like I would with some movies. Like the Star Wars Christmas special. <laughs> what are you talking about? That is pure cinematic art. Oh, God. I think my head just folds in on itself if that happens. Dude, part of me is still watching that movie. It is so fucking long. I'm never going to escape it. <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah, five out of ten. It's it's a fine movie, but I wanted more from it. Yeah, that's fair. I will give it this. It made me like uh, appreciate books more. Oh, While nice. we were watching it, I was like, oh, man, I could read a book. You're going to try reading for the first time? And I turned off the movie. And it was done. And I thought about reading a book, but I didn't. I just turned off the movie. But it made you consider. <laughs> yes. You thought about it. That's what really counts. Right. The twist is at the beginning of the podcast, you said we were literate, but I'm not. <laughs> there was a twist this episode. Yeah. Nice. Well, on that note, we'd like to thank you all for joining us here as we discussed another Fantasy movie in Inkheart. <laughs> yeah. If you enjoyed the show, maybe consider dropping us a review on your favorite podcatcher so that other people can find out about us and see how much you enjoy listening to our dulcet tones, question mark? Uh, uh yeah, dulcet. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to follow along and 
see the movies we'll be watching and keep up to date on our memes, you can follow us on social media at Swords and Satire. Yep. And if you'd like to add some extra support to our show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash swords and satire and join our patron community. You would get tons of cool benefits like voting on the shows we watch every month. A little bit of information behind the scenes here. This movie was voted on by our patrons. That's right. And we also have outtakes episodes and our rewriting history episodes on there that you'd get the benefit of. Man, that's dulcet as hell. (laughs) (laughs) But if you don't have a few extra bucks to spend on all that bonus content, why don't you use that silver tongue of yours and go tell all your friends, all your family, go tell your grandparents about Swords and Satire, go into their old library that they have in the abandoned wing of their home, and try and go onto their podcasting tablet. (laughs) (laughs) They'll say, what the fuck are you doing? And you're like, oh, I'm downloading this sick-ass show. Listen to it. And they say, well, you know, I think I've had my fellow podcast. And you say, no, Grandma, that's not right. But, you know, (laughs) see how it goes. Anyway, tell everybody. Tell everybody. You're a silver tongue. You'll make it work. Just read it. You'll manifest it. There you go. Well, until next time, Hail Crom! Or Cthulhu. Book. <laughs> Stink shirt. <laughs>